Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now and fast, heating up. Will the surge in the 10-year to almost 4% be a warning sign that this red-hot summer rally is about to get cooled off big time? The data and the debate coming up. Plus, throwing in the towel, Goldman Sachs finally ditching its sell rating on Netflix. This after the stock has rallied close to 130% since Goldman made that call. The next move for all the streamers straight ahead. And later, a buzzkill on Coinbase, China's new battle over rare earth metals, and Meta's new social media brawl with Elon Musk and Twitter. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen. We start off with what might be a major warning sign for the markets. A yield on the 10-year Treasury touching its highest level since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Rates ending the day just a few basis points shy of 4%. The two-year also rising, getting within a stone's throw of 5%. The yield had fallen below 3.6% in late March. So does a steady climb higher in rates threaten the market's recent run? And will it put a cap on how much higher the S&P 500 can go in the second half. Tim, what do you think? Well, I, you know, if you're, if you're measuring stocks and you're doing your valuation, you have a discount rate, that's pretty mechanical. In other words, higher rates mean lower equity prices. That's just what analysts do for a living. Um, if you think about a world where we have a trillion dollars of floating rate debt out there, so maybe that's the shorter end. But either way, if you think about the, the impact on earnings from higher rates from corporate America, uh, operating margins, et cetera, I, I just think uh, the dynamic with how rates are playing out here is a function of, of where we've seen the job market remain very resilient. We had a, you know, I realize we, we always poo-poo the GDP number, but when you saw that GDP number that was revised, uh, the consumption data inherent in that number really tells you that you know, rates maybe could be moving higher. And again, we're talking about three, three ninety four percent on a 10 year, which isn't runaway. And in fact, only gets you back to where we were. The fact that rates are taking back from where they were pre SVB. And I would take it more to the two year note, which is now closer to that March 8th high at 506 close um, is something that really gives you some sense that at least some normalcy has gotten back into the banking sector. I actually think it's actually relatively good news for now, even though, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Fed minutes and what they meant. I mean, the level, I was thinking about this because there was a technical analyst that I spoke to on Squawk on the Street earlier today, and he said 4%, that is, if we, if we go above 4%, that's going to be provide real resistance to the S&P 500. 4% seem to be the magic Maybe, number. but I guess what's different this time, and this is not me getting bullish by any means, if you just look at the Fed's balance sheet and look what happened since March, right? The S&P 500 has rallied like 15 plus percent since the lows. What did they do? They injected a whole bunch of liquidity, right? So the Fed's balance sheet was $9 trillion, okay, up from $4 trillion pre-pandemic, and then it came down to 8.3, went up to 8.7 in those few months following the SVB collapse. And here we are, we're back at that level. But the fact that you have rates moving back to that four and five level, I mean, I, the liquidity is still there. You know what I mean? And when you think about some of the biggest companies in that, that really make up the market, that make up earnings growth, that don't really care much about interest rates. I mean, in, in my opinion, they've done well in a higher inflationary environment. So to me, to put your finger on that, just because we're at those round numbers once again, I guess I would focus on more what that 210 spread is inverted, inverted as long as it has been, what that means over time. Because as long as the Fed's balance sheet stays up here and doesn't materially work lower, 
lower, and we know that they're going to go back to their playbook if there's any other credit issues that happen into the market as a basically, you know, like, like the round two of what we dealt with the regional banking crisis, then stocks remain bid because money went immediately in March to those largest numbers. Then they got hooked up into this AI thing, which is probably the one thing that a lot of bulls right here feel is recession proof. It's inflation proof. It's everything proof. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. You know, it's hard to say 4% is that particular number. I will say with higher rates, clearly it makes it for a much more challenging stock market. And what I do think will happen is we won't see the breath that the bulls are calling for. You will see a retrenchment into those top five or seven names where people think have a high margin of safety, don't need to refinance, uh, cash flow positive kind of, you know, balance sheets that are that, that look like war chests. I mean, that, that's really what I think will, will happen. Now the question is, will you see enough value uh, expansion within just that sub pocket in order to drive the market higher? And that's where I really think the challenge is. Without the breadth, I think it makes it tough to call for a new high in the s I think that's a really good point in terms of the five-year on the two-year. That's going to make it difficult for, like, the Russell 2000, for instance, to join in on this fund. We've seen a broadening in right. recent weeks. Mm-hmm. But if higher yields really put a crimp on, in some part of the market, it will be on the parts that will have to go to the market to fund. To fund, yeah, definitely harder. I mean, you're looking at rates near zero. It's amazing some of the bonds that you find out there that you see, mm-hmm. oh, my God, a zero with a conversion 300% higher than where the stock is. There's a number of those. It's, I mean, they all did a great job. The Fed it worked, what they were trying to do. Uh, but I feel like we're sort of in a little bit of a vacuum of news in that you know, we're, next week we will start to see bank earnings. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will really, banks, not only do we want to know how the banks are doing, which I think probably pretty well, but we also want to know what do they see in the economy? What are they seeing from the consumer? Are they starting to see any M&A pickup? So I, I think that... I'm a little more optimistic that we'll see some good things coming out of earnings. I know the bar is getting higher. Certainly on anything AI, the bar is stratospheric, but I don't know. I'm optimistic. We'll also get jobs on Friday. Which yeah, be I, I, yeah. I, that's what I think. I think we have jobs Friday. We have a CPI number the following Wednesday. The, the headline number on CPI is 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 going to be below five. Um, and and so and if you I'm sorry, the, the, the core CPI could be below five. You could you know, I'm seeing consensus of the street around four point nine um, headline on CPI. Really, if you look at the year over year is going to be kind of an exciting number, even though that's not the number we're looking at. But we we're waiting for payrolls to kind of reinforce that some of the uh, the, the, the tightening is, is putting an impact on what companies are doing. So far, so good. But uh, again, I, I go back to the market that we have. And, and we're talking about AI and what it did to NVIDIA and what it did to all these other uh, tech companies, really, not even just the ones that were in the middle of AI. And, and I look at the semiconductors index, which hasn't made a relative new high against the S&P since May 25th, the day that NVIDIA reported this. And you had this spike high. So um, I, I continue to think you have to at least watch this in terms of the market's direction. I'm not saying you're falling out of bed, but if you do that ratio, of, of essentially the, the SMH divided by, uh, you know, by essentially the, the SPY, you're at this ratio of about 0.35, where we keep failing at, and I think you have to watch that. All right, let's get to the latest commentary out of the Federal Reserve. The central bank noting in the minutes that most members anticipate more rate hikes ahead. CNBC's Steve Leisman has more on that. We knew that, Steve. So what else do we find out? Hey, Melissa. 
Well, New York Fed President John Williams just got done with some remarks. He says inflation is still too high, but he does see some progress. Uh, he says he's somewhat surprised by the release of the housing market. There were some comments about that in the minutes as well. Maybe the housing market bottoming out. Uh, he said he supported the decision to pause in June because slowing the pace of rate increases makes sense as the Fed gathers more data and figures out the lagged effects of monetary policy rate hikes that it's already done. He supports a meeting by meeting decision on rates, but don't get too happy because he goes on to say the Fed's projections for rate show we don't think we are done. That was reflected in the minutes to the Fed's June meeting, came out at 2 o'clock this afternoon, where almost all thought future rate hikes were appropriate, even as they voted unanimously at the time to pause. But the minutes raised questions about that unanimity because some said they wanted to hike 25 basis points at the last meeting. In the end, the pause prevailed, with most saying the Fed would benefit from more time, as William said, to assess the lagged effects of rate hikes. Uh, but the Fed wasn't necessarily happy with the sense of the economy. If you look at what their problems were with the economy, they said inflation was too high, uh, risk to the upside, labor market was very tight, consumer spending and GDP were both resilient, and housing may indeed have bottomed. Looking at the uh, Fed futures uh, uh, contracts right now, where the Fed is, or where the market thinks the Fed is, 85% probability of a rate hike coming in July, but only about 35 or so when it comes to that next hike in November. So the market's on board right now with the issue. There's the chart right there, 35 for the November <coughs> rate hike. Market's on board with that first hike. Second hike, they're kind of flirting with, but there's time to figure that out. And obviously some data dependence. I think a lot of members of the Fed want to do that second hike, but they'll be uh, guided by the data. Melissa? I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you this morning. I mean, if the Fed really wants to get to 2%, and they're noting all these different things about the economy that remain strong, it seems like there's a long road ahead. It's not just another 25 basis points and poof, you're done. I mean, housing may have bottomed. That's great. But the housing market really hasn't taken much of a stumble if you look at the, the recent data and, and how home builders are doing. No, that's right. I mean, even, even the current level of home building, uh, at, at 1.3, 1.4 million, we've, we've seen much lower rates than that when there's been a real decline in housing. You're right, Melissa, the Fed has a problem with two particular areas, housing and autos, both of which should be extremely rate sensitive. But autos, I think Phil LeBeau's been reporting fairly robust annual sales for the most recent month. So that's a problem because there's some pent up demand. And as you know, a lot of pent up demand in housing. So the Fed's going to have to lean harder in two different ways. One is it could lean harder by hiking rates. The second is it'll lean harder by staying at a high rate while the inflation rate falls, Melissa. What will that mean? It'll mean the real rate, the real Fed funds rate, will actually become at least as restrictive or more restrictive. If Tim is right, you get this decline in uh, core CPI coming up or just in regular CPI coming up. Well, then relatively, the Fed is tighter because the real rate minus inflation is higher. All right, Steve, thanks. Go catch your flight. I think you're at the airport. Steve Leesman, thank you. Uh, it's always good to get to see his input. Um, is he in one of those little CNBC newspaper places? Oh, that's a good question. Those are great places. Except they don't have fast money prominently featured. I know. I don't know. We, <laughs> yeah, we'll get on that right away. It's a high priority. Um, in terms of, I mean, let's say they do 25 more basis points and they stay there for a long time. Is that going to produce a restrictive environment that the Fed needs? I guess wants? it's that real rate, right? It just depends right. how quickly, you know, inflation's coming down or whether it reinserts itself. And the, those are some of the concerns that you're seeing um, over over in Europe, I, you know, I go back to, you know, when you just said you're optimistic, it's, it's interesting, you know, from here, and I know you've been optimistic this year, and um, and you were optimistic at the lows last year. From here, I mean, what does it take? I was right? optimistic at the highs also. No, but, no, 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 no,
you know, pounding the table down. But my, my, my point is, is like, you, you'd be optimistic that we're going to avoid a recession that like almost every economist um, like nine months ago was pretty certain was going to happen at some point this year. I think they're all long. still expecting it. No, it's just I weird. Mean, I mean, like, it's just really, when you look at the home sales and the way they reaccelerated on a sequential basis, up 12%, you know, month over month, and you those are new home sales. And you look at what the stock market's doing despite what's going on with interest rates and despite the Fed speaking in the hawkish pause and everything like that. It just seems like we're getting to a place where we have all been over the last 20 or so years at different times where it, things things are kind of off the rails just from a, a risk asset value standpoint. And that's where things, I think, get really dangerous. We're very rational people like you remain optimistic in the face of something that really shouldn't be the case. If you think about how quickly rates have gone up, what the Fed is saying and what they're still trying to do. Response? <laughs> Response from no. a rational person. <laughs> right. Hello. No, I think that um, they've been, okay, it's been a while since they've started. It's already 15 months, right? And they were telling us, telling us, telling us over and over again, we are going to raise rates. We're going to be aggressive. There was no doubt. So we've had a lot of time. And I, you know, I hear a lot about, well, we haven't even seen the full lag effects. I don't know. I feel like it's starting to be enough time that those lag effects would be here. The housing thing, it's a very unique situation with people who have a home and a mortgage at, you know, three-ish percent who can't move and don't want to move. And the supply-demand dynamic from the housing crisis is still so out of whack. Great for the home builders, but not so great for people looking to find an affordable home. But I also think companies are just run better. And I think that uh, also the market's not a monolith. There, there are areas that have sort of been left behind, and then there's obviously AI, which is way out ahead. But I don't know. I still remain optimistic. It's just my way. Just sitting across from you makes me optimistic. What the can one, I say? The, the one place, though, we, we really are getting consumer credit data that's breaking down. I mean, yeah. we're, seeing, we're seeing both in aggregate levels of where it is outstanding in terms of debt service ratios, uh, percentage of disposable income to debt service. I mean, so, you know, at some point that feeds through to corporates. And, and that's something we should all be watching. Um, I, I also just, you know, back to that 10 year, if you think about where we were before we even knew COVID could, could exist in this world, um, we're in a world where equities were always about Tina. There was no alternative. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a dynamic that I think we were talking about in 2018 as rates went from kind of 150 up to 280 on my charts here before we started to fall apart. We have to consider equities and their earnings yield and the alternatives investors have in yield product than they, what they had back then. Yeah. For more on what all this could signal for markets and the economy in the second half, let's bring in CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar. He is Weekly Financial Group's chief investment officer. Peter, great to see you. Did you learn much? You said nothing new came out of the minutes. Nothing new, but anybody looking through the minutes to try to find any hint of dovishness didn't really find it. And I think that's why... Uh, the rate hike odds for July didn't really change at around 82%. Now, can that change with Friday's payroll number or next week's CPI? Maybe, but it seems that the Fed is at least intent on going one more time. I say one more time because I think this is one more time too much, and I find it hard to believe that they're going to go past this uh, because of the restricted nature of where we are today. You know, Karen was making the point just now, Peter, that, you know, it's been 15 months since the first rate hike. And shouldn't we start to see some of the lag effects at this point? And I'm I'm wondering, you know, based on what how do you think those lag effects are going to manifest in the economy if if we're not really seeing so much right now? What are you expecting if you think the Fed is going too far already? It's happening every day, but it's not making it on the front page of The Wall Street Journal. It's happening to the person whose adjustable rate mortgage just came due. 
It's happening to the business that has a loan coming due or has a, uh, a floating rate piece of paper that is resetting. It's happening every single day. Somebody's seeing a dramatically sharply higher cost of capital because every day somebody's loan is coming due, whether it's a business or a household. So this is sort of a, a silent killer, in my opinion, to economic growth that we don't see headline nature wise. But in a cumulative perspective, it's happening over the next couple of quarters over the next couple of years if rates stay at these high levels for a while. More money is being allocated to interest expense. Bankruptcies are picking up. Commercial real estate projects we know are handing back the keys. This is just, like I said, a silent um, impact on the economy that is not front page news, but it's happening every single day and somebody's getting caught with too much debt or an unlevered, or I should say an uh, unbalanced balance sheet. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Bono one here. So there seems to be a lot of uh, attention paid to the absolute level of rates. But one thing that the Fed officials were unanimous about was the desire to shrink balance sheet. Would you mind speaking a bit about that and the effects that perhaps are being overlooked on that aspect? Well, well, I agree. And, and I know Dan was talking about it earlier. Probably on Friday, uh, we'll see the, the, the balance sheet of the Fed get finally back below where it was right before SVB collapsed. So I think the, the balance sheet shrinkage is going to be now more notable from here from a contractionary standpoint. And we know QE was meant to lift asset prices. QT does the reverse, even though it's sort of been put to the side because of these other uh, liquidity things with the RRP, for example, and the TGA and so forth. But I think from here on out, from a liquidity standpoint, uh, it begins to matter. Now, this is also sort of behind the scenes. But I think it's while the Fed may be done about raising interest rates, whether they go one more time or not, they're going to rely on higher for longer and they're going to rely on the continued shrinkage of that balance sheet. Now, where the balance sheet's going to go and where they're targeting, we don't know eventually where it settles out at. But I know in the Fed's mind right now, they hope to shrink the balance sheet by another one to two trillion dollars from here. Peter, always good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Peter Bookfar, bleakly. Um, I think it's an interesting point. If you had an adjustable rate mortgage, let's say it was 5-1, I mean, what was your rate and what is it jumping to? The differential is enormous at this point. Yeah, throw the student loan thing on there. I, I mean, listen, there's a lot of things, but I, listen, you know, uh, optimistic. You have to be. Markets go up over time, right? And it just like in this sort of environment with these sorts of dynamics and, you know, it's really hard to see how we can get much further from here uncorrected uh, at some point. And when you think about just the NASDAQ in particular and you think of the concentration of those names, I know that it sounds like we're beating a dead horse. You know, there's been all this focus on the broadening out of the markets, but when you put a bunch of the sectors that are starting to participate, they really add up to like, you know, an Apple and a Microsoft, you know what I mean, combined. So it's just like so many, uh, so much of the optimism seems to be in 10 stocks and that just, it, you know, seems to be a dangerous situation. Well, again, the, the most notable line today from those Fed minutes was, uh, it does not appear the economy is, is, Inflation's on a path to return to the committee's 2% objective over time. Like, they don't think that they're even close here. That means rates are staying where they are. They're, you know, during this period and with that expectation and Fed funds have priced this in. By the way, you look out one year, there's, we're exactly where we are right now in Fed funds. So the market's kind of saying we kind of we believe the Fed. But, but look at the chart on FedEx. Look at the chart on, on airlines. I mean, these are, these are industrials that are telling you something. Um, look at what's going on in Japan, who's really been welcoming um, any signs of inflation. So there are places to invest in this market. I think Japan's going to overshoot to the upside. We spend a lot of time talking international. There are some places that actually are, are doing well in this environment. 
And I think that's where people need to be. I, I think staples um, look expensive. I think, you know, we forget mega cap tech, but I think there are places um, within healthcare that have been very beaten up. I think this is that opportunity here. All right, coming up, the streaming wars rage on. Analysts binging on Netflix as Amazon's big spending comes into focus. So where should you be in this trade? We'll debate that next. Plus, crypto crash by one firm is calling for a big drop in Coinbase shares and why the recent Bitcoin boom didn't help. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix on a binge today, hitting its highest level since February 2022 after a pre-earnings upgrade from Goldman Sachs. The bank raising the stock to a neutral from a sell and hiked its price target to $400 from $230, setting prolonged post-pandemic momentum fueled by its password-sharing clampdown. Still, the target's about 10% below where Netflix closed the day. We're all scratching our heads here. Uh, meantime, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy is reportedly reevaluating spending on its own original programming as part of its company-wide cost-cutting program. Um, Tim, you, you've been in this. Uh, it, it, yeah. First of all, it's tough being an analyst in, in anything. It's tough doing what we do. We get things wrong all sure. the time. That 230 probably went when the stock was, you know, at 220, you know. Um, so... Anyway, but the argument for Netflix, especially around content, is that they're in a pretty good position here, not just because of a strike that's going on in Hollywood that may be expanding, may not be, but because of the international presence that's always been one of the reasons why Netflix actually was the stock you wanted to own, where they had their growth, is where they don't run into this. Um, their content machine, uh, which has also proven to be maybe more efficient than the major studios, I think it just gets down to they're finally getting rewarded. People can see this is all accretive, what's going on past we're sharing. Um, and also that their lower price ad tier has been wildly successful and even changing how people are viewing without it being cannibalistic. So um, if you look at the stock, you know, back up to that 450 level, that's the level after the Q122 disaster where it traded down It rallied back up to there. And I think there's some resistance here. But again, that's, you know, that's where the stock is, is uh, you know, I think run into some trouble, but I think it builds a base there too. Part of this call was that competition. I think the word was more is more muted. And yep. as Amazon News, this report that it's scrutinizing what it's spending on Amazon Studios really gets to that point that everybody is looking at how much scrutinizing their budgets when it comes to spend, which is great for Netflix. It is great for Netflix. Netflix is in financially the best position by far. Mm -hmm. Tim talking about that point. I mean, that was the beginning of 2022. Money was still free. And you had all these streamers coming in and they were putting up big numbers, right? Yeah. Disney was seen as a very successful. This would be great for Disney. And you had all these yep. new competitors jumping in. That game is over. Money is no longer free for sure. And so Netflix is just it's just the winner. I just keep waiting to see. 
who gets taken out either via merger or they just throw the throw in the towel because it's too too expensive. Yeah, and hindsight's always 2020, but that move away from subscriber growth might seems to be very prescient. Essentially, if you're growing at what you're growing, but at what cost? And for them to say we're strategically going to shift away from that, in, in addition to the ad tier and uh, cracking down on passwords, I think you know sets a pretty nice. The real question is here at 37, 38 times, are you willing to pay for the incremental upside? And I just don't think I really am. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there was a time where I think you bought it last fall. It was really cheap. I mean, the last time it traded at like 15 times or something like that, but that's no longer the case here. And when you think about them having the same enterprise value as a Disney right now, and we know the issues with Disney, but if I was going to play would you would rather? You oh. I'd much rather do Disney right here. I mean, I just might, and, and I got it. they got the debt. They got a whole host of other issues here. That one seems like a no-brainer. But to Tim's point about the chart, that Q1 gap, you probably have 10% upside. That gap might get filled to $500 or something like that if this continues to go that way. But I wouldn't be there for that because the expectations get that much higher. And if there's any sort of slip-ups here, um, you know, like I, I just don't think you want to be that. And you, people have to remember this, okay? Because Meta and Netflix and Tesla and Nvidia. Stocks that go down 75% from an all-time high when no one thinks they can do it can do it again. You know, I'm just saying right now they're just up on on fumes here. You know what I mean? So that's the one thing I'd be really cautious about chasing some of these names here. Would you rather Disney or Netflix? It seems like Disney, like it might be better off if, if it did First not all, have I, a streaming business. How did Dan pull me into his reindeer yeah. games here? I mean, <laughs> actually, by the way, he played, he played it right. He, he, he played it right. Um, so I'm long Netflix. I've sold one third of a position and, and I'm long Disney. And that's been a disaster. Um, I agree on a on a on a pairs trade. It's kind of like your target at Walmart trade. At some point, so bad, it's good if I'm no. Carter. So to the penny, maybe, if I can throw in some Carter. <laughs> um, I, I, I like Disney here. I'm not ready to get rid of my Netflix entirely. All right. Uh, we were talking about Amazon here. Do not miss an exclusive interview with Amazon CEO Andy Jassy. That's tomorrow, 4 p.m. on Closing Bell Overtime right here on CNBC. Meantime, a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A quarter drop for Coinbase? Why one analyst sees a 25% slide in store for the stock despite crypto's recent run-up. The details next. Plus, a China-U.S. tit for tat. As Washington goes after semi-exports, Beijing is targeting the stuff used to make them. So how does the back and forth end up shaking out? We're diving in ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Buzzkill on Coinbase. Piper Sandler downgrading the crypto exchange to a neutral from an overweight, sending shares 2% lower today. The firm forecasting up to a 25% downside ahead in a Q3 outlook that includes its lowest trading volumes and monthly users in over two years. Despite the stock's 122% rally this year, Piper says last month's SEC lawsuit has prevented Coinbase from benefiting from the recent run on crypto. Maybe it's because of the 122% run this year that is downgrading Coinbase. Bono, where do you stand on this name? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, it's hard for me to kind of get off the 
get off the train here. I can understand from a momentum trade, you want to take some profits. It's up, like you said, 120%. But I'll say that people have been bearish on this name for quite some time, as evidenced by the whatever, whatever it is, 22 24% short interest, and the short interest change of 7% recently. So it's people that are resetting shorts. To me, that sets up for possibly another short squeeze. I think given what we just heard from the SEC, with not just Coinbase, but the whole industry, mm-hmm. I just think that, like, you know, I wouldn't chase it here. And if I was playing Would You Rather, I'd much go. Again? Uh, wow. Yeah, what, what is this? Well, I, I'd go to a Robin Hood. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, when you look at, the, you know, the, they have two-thirds of their market cap in cash right now. They're going to expect it to be profitable next year. And you think about their revenues getting back to peak in that 2021 period. They have the exposure to crypto. They have the demographic exposure. And, and they're, you know, it's not just crypto. So to me, that one seems more, if I was playing that game. I've never seen anyone in all my years go back to back segments and actually do it on his own. You've even yeah. beat Grosso. That's, that's unreal. Yeah. But again, he played it well. Yeah. I mean, he, he really? did do the game the right yeah. way, even though I've never seen anyone too successive box on this show. Um, Bitcoin ETFs, though, should this be a good thing or a bad thing for Coinbase? I, I think it's I think it's ultimately a bad thing. Um, I think, yeah. you know, the the, the so commoditization, the ability to have it out there and the ETF companies, which are following the SEC's guidelines and have been very careful not to overstep it. Um, I, I think it's a really tough place to be challenging the SEC on the on its boundaries. I realize we're allowed to do this in this country. Um, but right now, nobody has said um, that that these things are, are in a place where they couldn't be securities. So, yeah, I agree. I think not only is it you know taking share that could go away easily, it's also the commoditization. How much how much are the fees going to be? They're going to put so much pressure for them to come down. I don't quite get the strategy of being so aggressive mm-hmm. uh, on TV and to mm-hmm. the SEC. I'm not. I mean, kind of you know that's. Got some cojones, but I, I probably ice, would use a different ice. strategy. Maybe they've exhausted all of their avenues. That could be. That it. could be. That could right. be. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up, U.S.-China relations in focus as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen prepares for a trip to Beijing. What her visit could mean for ongoing tensions. And speaking of China, a new export restriction sending one miner soaring. So will the heavy metal keep rocking? A rare, rare earth options look when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing lower as investors digest the minutes from the Fed's latest meeting. The Dow dropping nearly 130 points, breaking a three-day winning streak. The S&P and Nasdaq falling two-tenths of a percent. Airlines managing to close in the green, JetBlue, Spirit, Delta, American, and United, all with some nice gains. And shares of Rivian driving higher once again. The EV maker rolling out its first Amazon delivery vans in Germany. The company on Monday also reported better-than-expected deliveries in Q2 and reaffirmed its outlook in terms of deliveries for the full year. Shares are up 22 percent this week. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen traveling to Beijing to meet with senior Chinese officials beginning tomorrow. The talk's coming as China puts new export restrictions on metals, using everything from semis to EVs. One official saying the move is just the start in the ongoing back and forth between the U.S. and Beijing. For more, we are joined by John Rutledge, Safanad Chief Investment Strategist and Honorary Professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, John, great to see you as always. And, and of course, we also got the report that uh, the U.S. Will, will limit or curtail the amount of business that U.S. cloud companies can do with, uh, with companies in China. All this is, is going back and forth as, as these officials are trying to repair relations. Do you think that they're really trying to repair relations at this point? Do you think that can actually work? No, Melissa, I think it's very likely we're no longer going to be BFFs when this is all uh, done. It's, you know, there's something every day. Last Friday, it was uh, the Dutch uh, prime minister saying they'll no longer export uh, fancy lithography machines from ASML. 
on Saturday. We had the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, which is Xi Jinping, Putin, and they and they brought in Iran to the group this uh, this week. And then and then we had the rare earths, gallium and uh, germanium. You couldn't even make up those names. Uh, the next one is the big one, which is a restriction from the U.S. on in capital going out of the U.S. into China. That's a first, and it's very big. Cepheus foreign capital coming in has been around for a long time. This is about capital exports. So you could call it sexiest if you really want to, but uh, we're, she's going to have a very difficult four days and her four days might turn into two days like happened to Mr. Blinken. Dr. It's Karen, thanks for coming on. I was wondering, why is it that Secretary Yellen, Secretary Blinken, both of them, they're going to China. Why isn't, why aren't we seeing China dignitaries equivalent of the secretaries coming to the U.S. Well, that's a good, it's a very good point. Uh, I've, many times on, on shows uh, on the network, I've, I've talked about how important the PR and the face is for Chinese leaders. What really matters to them is how the messages get bounced back inside of China. Uh, when Blinken was there, you, there was a very widely televised meeting where Xi Jinping sat at the head of the table Anthony Blinken was over way on the side of the table and he was taking notes. That was broadcast all over China. Something like that will happen with Secretary Yellen, too, where it'll be very clear that she is a subordinate to whoever is uh, doing, the, uh, doing this. So they're, they're looking to embarrass us and they're looking to intensify this to get us to back off. I don't think it's going to happen. Hey, John, it's Tim. In all my time investing in emerging markets, a lot of it in China, uh, China's always welcomed foreign capital. If this concept of we're going to restrict incoming capital, forget, obviously the U.S. is the biggest capital markets in the world, the most liquid market in the world. But, but yep. you know, even in the worst of times, we, we've seen China keep all of those avenues open and even figure out a way to keep those issues separate and keep money, hoping to make it a, a money center. Um, is it game over if that really happens? I mean, I think well, I know the you know, game over is a big. It, it, yeah. That's probably more than we could say because Xi Jinping will die one day and they'd be replaced by someone else. But at the moment, uh, the Chinese capital market closed for foreign investors when uh, when Jack Ma was kicked out of Alibaba, uh, and I think that was the big signal that we're going to place security ahead of economics. Now, ironically. Yellen is going to China to tell them that the U.S. has decided to place security in front of economics. So we're going to do various things like restrict uh, semiconductors, lean on our friends in Holland to restrict ASML. Uh, we're, we're going to restrict capital from flowing into your country. And, uh, and so this is just the, the beginning of, I think, a long battle. Economically, it's not good for China at all. It's not good for us either. But really, China's in a spot to be hurt the most by this. John, great to see you. Thank you. Pleasure. John Rutledge, Safanad. Um, you know, when we heard gallium and germanium, you think then maybe graphite. You think then maybe rare earths, which is why we saw MP surge on the day. I mean, it goes on and on in terms of what they can hit us back with. It seems like it's it's continuing to escalate, and it really makes it tough to invest in Chinese equities. I mean, I think the upside is compelling, particularly the valuations. They've come off so much, but then he, you know, he hearkened the Jack Ma saga. It really makes it difficult for you to try to attach some type of fundamental analysis 
and, and price targeting around where you think these equities should trade. With that said, I do think ultimately economics will win out. People are going to continue to chase yield, and for that reason, it's going to continue to attract capital. The argument, though, I mean, if, if Jack Ma was kicked out because China was putting national security over economics, right, and, and that was your signal, that was John's signal, I mean, the same could be uh, true for the U.S. We're putting national security over economics with these export controls. So at well, it, it, doesn't it extend to you know, certain, certain industries we are, here? Not we are doing it here, but we're, we're trying to build up Intel, right? We're trying to make Intel uh, actually being able to compete with Taiwan Semi. And I would, go, I would just say that the Jack Ma situation was Jack Ma got too far ahead of China. Um, it was not China was beaten down one of its own. Pardon the expression. But that was you know, the case of you're not bigger than the government. And, and you've actually kind of flaunted the rules on how we do things around here. And, and I actually am really excited to see Joe Tsai and Jack Ma kind of back in play. And I, I think that's at least a trade. And remember when China was so bad back on October 28th, we did a, 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 and we, we make fun of ourselves. So we get things oh, yeah. sometimes so wrong. That was the bottom uh, of at least China a very big trade. I think that was our I headline. I know. Yeah. yeah. I'm proud of that, too. I mean, if you, we can reliably be a contrarian indicator. That's, that's the very We are really told we are. Um, rare earth restrictions having a big impact on one producer today. Shares of MP materials, as you mentioned, jumping as much as 11% during the session. Options traders were active in the name, too. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly joins us with the action. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, off the excitement today where the stock was up 6%, you actually saw about four times the amount of calls traded versus puts. And, you know, this has a high implied volatility in the name, but you saw a bunch of options being traded all the way out to the December expiry. And the most one of the most active contracts today was the December $30 strike calls. And you had about 3,800 contracts traded that, and, and they closed the day at about $1.71. So you have 163 days till expiry, and, and hopefully the stock can get above 30 for a lot of those contracts. Kevin, thanks. Kevin Kelly for Washington's Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Zuckerberg at it again. Meta planning a new rival to Twitter. Wall Street liking the news today, sending shares higher. We'll bring you the details next. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A social media shakeup could be in the works as Meta prepares to roll out its text-based Twitter competitor called Threads. The stock surging nearly 3% ahead of the launch, now at highs not seen since February 2022. Julia Borson has all the details. Julia. Melissa, that's right. With Meta's 3% gains today, shares are now up 144% year-to-date, bolstered by optimism today about Threads. It's a new app that the social giant is getting ready to roll out. Now, Threads was set to debut tomorrow, but the countdown clock on Threads says it's launching in just about an hour and 15 minutes. Now, Threads is described as a text-based conversation app. It appears to look a lot like Twitter. It's designed to leverage Instagram's popularity, enabling users to quickly follow the same profiles they follow on Instagram and to use their Instagram handles to log in and create an account. Now, analytics firm Insider Intelligence saying, quote, Meta only needs roughly one in four Instagram users to use threads monthly to make it as big as Twitter. Meta already has the scale, resources, and execution strategy to make that happen. The launch of Threads comes at a time when Twitter is particularly vulnerable, on the heels of Elon Musk setting limits to the number of tweets people could read. Plus, there are questions about how many of Twitter's users will opt into paying for the company's Twitter Blue subscription service, and it seems like Threads 
is free. We will learn more about Threads when it launches very soon. Melissa. An hour and 15 minutes. I know Dan Nathan has his uh, countdown clock on his computer right now. <laughs> Julie, I'm wondering in terms of selling advertising, does, does Meta have the advantage because it can, it can sell the advertising across platforms and maybe give people free ads to be on Threads as an experiment? Well, I don't know about free ads, but they do have the ability to sell ads across platforms and also target ads across platforms. The fact that you're using your Instagram login means that they already know what types of content you like on Instagram. Mm. Um, they could also, of course, target ads based on the content you're interacting with um, on this new platform. But they have a huge advantage that they have this, this advertising business machine already very much built out. All right. Julia, thanks. Julia Borson. I made fun of Dan. I don't didn't mean. Who, who does it? <laughs> Elon, right. Elon did. Twitter, right. Listen, yeah. listen, listen, listen. Twitter's dead. It's dead. It's gone. It's got 330 million monthly active users, and they're declining. You know, Snap had 750 million that they just announced. That was up 25 percent year over year. Okay, so then you think about what Meta has been able to do. You know, you talked about how they're going to monetize Threads. They bought WhatsApp for $20 billion 10 years ago, and they still don't monetize it. And they have nearly 3 billion active users there. As far as Instagram, they have 2.5 billion monthly active users that are fairly well addicted. This Reels thing is working really well. If they just take an average crack at this, they are going to be able to surpass Twitter at doing this. They're going to have much better relationships with advertisers. Think about that, okay? The advertisers are leaving. Their advertising is down 40%. Twitter's done. It's over, guys. Turn the light out. Well, I think it's funny what's happened with Twitter. It's sort of, you know, PR problems uh, every day. And it's just kind of funny to me that, you know, now the world sort of views, all right, Mark Zuckerberg is the grown-up in the room here. And this, you know, it's not going to be the sort of cesspool that Twitter is. I find that sort of funny, uh, but happy that it's working out that way. I mean, Meta has turned it around so dramatically, and Zuckerberg at the moment can't do anything wrong. Yeah, but I mean, I'll say this for Twitter. I mean, expectations and where it is couldn't be lower right now than where it is. And it, it's been such a relevant uh, and under monetized asset in the media world and in, you know, live news flow that, that I, I don't think that that's gone. I, I mean, I, and I think that there's maybe there is a new regime about to take hold there. So it's something to think about. But as far as Meta goes, I mean, Reels, uh, again, a low base. But you know, I was reading a note by Mark Mahaney at Evercore. I mean, their they're year over year uh, Instagram Reels is going to grow at like three times off of where it was a year ago. So the ad spend and what they're doing and their ability to actually monetize there is an exciting part of the meta story. It's not just about cost savings. I mean, there is something there. Coming up, uh, Yahoo, Take Two, the once dominant internet giant is planning to go public again. What's behind the move and how will investors take to the stock? Our desk will weigh in on that one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it a case of Yahoo Deja Vu. The one-time dot-com darling is reportedly planning on a return to the public market. CEO Jim Lanzone telling the Financial Times the company is, quote, ready financially, has a great balance sheet, and we're very profitable. Yahoo was acquired by Verizon six years ago, then sold to Apollo in 2021. But will this trade flop or fly in a future IPO? Were you in Yahoo, Y-H-O-O, 
Listen, when it this, was public? Who was uh, it? Back in the day, yeah. This will be impossible for it to flop for Apollo. The way that they bought this company, the way they've retooled it, the way they sold some assets and took out a bunch of their equity. Remember, this is a private equity mm-hmm. company. So um, this is going to be a hit for them. It'll be interesting in the context of what we just talked about. I think that they have like almost a billion monthly active users. People don't think about Yahoo. It's one of the most trafficked websites on the planet. So if, if Jim Lanzone in that FT article said they are very profitable, he didn't just say profitable, he said very profitable. Mm. So this uh, return to market of Yahoo got us thinking, what other company should go public that is currently private? Karen, what, uh, what popped into your head? Well, I always thought Mars Company, the gigantic candy company, uh, they should be public. I know it's family-owned. They're all, you know, multi-multi-billionaires. But I think the street would love to have some Mars candy. The maker of Mars Bar. Mars or, Bars. Yeah. Do they make M&M's? It's with great irony that Karen does not eat candy. I don't candy. eat candy. I mean, but I'm not we eat a lot of candy stuff. here, and Karen yes. does not eat any at all. Makes us if all If you want to sponsor bad. us in our candy bottle, <laughs> we can offer York's that. peppermint <laughs> Bono, and what's your pick? You know, it might be an obvious pick, but uh, open AI. I mean, can we say anything mm. without mentioning artificial intelligence? I think you've got to ride the wave. If there's ever a time to be selling into strength, it would be right now. Tim? I think it's ARM, which SoftBank took public back in took private back in 2016. Um, right, you know, SoftBank needs a victory or two, and this this company's really reemerged, especially in a world of AI where they are um, at least involved in some of the technology to the hyperscalers. Dan, what do yeah, you say? I, I didn't play the game right. Uh, mine would be Stripe. <laughs> it is going to go public. But interestingly, it was valued like a year and a half ago at $95 billion. They just did a raise at $50 billion. I want to see how the public markets receive this Cut in thing. half, basically? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not a good time big, for that. Uh, it'll be a big test, though, for big cap and fintech. And unicorns, yeah. Correct. Up next, final trades. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. I love McDonald's. My son eats their chicken McNuggets, and it's the only protein he gets, and I'm embarrassed to admit that. But I think you have to sell it at 300. I've been long a long time. Uh, I'll, I'll be back. Whatever it takes. <laughs> what I say, yeah. Karen. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have in the control room. He is. Yeah, yes. Connor's in there. He's uh, in great there. to Promise. see him. Um, we all that talk about uh, Coinbase makes me think interactive broker. It's an interesting business at not an expensive price. Bono in. Similarly, all this discussion about seeing on U.S. tensions makes me think defensives. LMT. Lucky Martin. All right. Dan Nathan. You know what would be cool if it went public? I'm going to play it right now. Oh, now you're in and out burger. Wasn't that in and out burger? We would have a lot of fun. The taste test with Guy and everything like that. We've done that. Within an out, not within an out. Not within an out. We did the nuggets of other burgers. You like interactive brokers. Yeah. You are optimistic. I'm optimistic on Robinhood. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So optimistic you chose to break break the rules. Yeah, again. Many times today. Thanks for watching Fast despite our reindeer games. Matt Nunio, Jim Kramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.